0: Even those painful experiences have a, a freshness or a rawness to them that can be the gateway to a kind of clarity. Even more so than pleasant experiences, sometimes we, we can use any of those things. If you can use even some things as sorrowful as the loss of a loved one as a sort of entrance into a new perspective or a new way of seeing, that's what we call Xanachiming.
1: You're listening to Find the Good News, Episode 92, The Resonant Strings, a beacon series conversation featuring Meadow Moore Roshi, Abbot of Karenji, a Rinzai Zen monastery, and author of The Rinzai Zen Way, a guide to practice from Shambhala Publications. Find the Good News is produced by Parker Brand Creative Services, a branding agency that thinks sideways, pushes forward, and gets your brand up. See what else we do at Parker Brand Up. Com. Zen. In the circles I've traveled, it is a word that is often said and even more misunderstood. Truth? I'm still trying to understand it myself. More truth? When I feel I've built a nice and sturdy framework for it, the structure I've constructed topples to sticks and stones. I laugh about it. I cry about it. I let go. I start again. This, I think, is Zen. But is it? It's this question that lies at the heart of my conversation with Meadow Mor Roshi, abbot of Kurinji, a Rinzai Zen monastery in Wisconsin, where he transmits Zen Buddhist teachings that can find roots as far back as 5th century India. Meadow is an 86th generation Zen Dharma heir and a 48th generation holder of the lineage descended from Rinzai Gaijin. The Rinzai Zenway, as instructed by Meido Moroshi, places particular emphasis on making use of the body as part of the practice, as well as fine arts and internal energetic work. It was clear to me that he has an elemental connection and appreciation for the natural world, sharing this with his students by incorporating earth, air, fire, and water into their training. While there is certainly an aesthetic to Zen that is quite peaceful and minimalist, Medo is clear that the Rinzai Zen way is much more akin to boot camp than a day at the spa. In this conversation, Medo graciously helped clarify many of the concepts of Zen Buddhism, not least of all these three. What am I? What is this life for? Why is there suffering? Tucked in the green hills and farmlands of Madison, Wisconsin, there is, at this very moment, an abbot and his students sincerely seeking the answers to these very questions. Wisdom and compassion are cultivated, the wheel of the dharma turns, transmission occurs. I am reminded that it is good to have obtained this human existence. This, I think, is Zen. Now, it's time to tune your attention to this good news beacon and press play on a little Good news. Wake up, it's morning. You're dreaming up a story I can hear. The way it's going, cause laugh laughing in your sleep. On the path to deliverance, and a holy wall of light. window. Old news, bad news, fake news. Sometimes you want to shut those signals down and seek a better source. With my Find the Good News Beacon series, I tune into good people doing good works wherever I can find them. I scan across the full spectrum of life, seeking out human beings that have turned their dials towards helping others, aligning their time, resources, and talents with goodness, justice, mercy, and love. In each episode, I sync up with the hearts and minds of my extraordinary guests. We have dynamic conversations that invigorate the mind long after our transmission has ended. I discover the critical life experiences that shape them, the perspectives that drive them, and the fundamental beliefs that have anchored them to a path of goodness. There's a lot of background noise in the world. My name is Oren Parker, and I'm cutting through the static to find the good. <laughs> the little bridge that got me in front of you and you in front of me was Greg Soden from the Classical Ideas podcast.
0: Yeah, that's right. Great guy and great podcast.
1: Yeah, I love his show. That was one of those uh, kind of serendipitous things. You know, you, you listen to someone's show and you, you consume things like that and then one day you know you just go well why don't i just reach out to this guy you know he's up at the top of the country i'm down here at the bottom he doesn't know me but maybe uh maybe we can build a little bridge and yeah he's become a really good friend i uh an ally i guess so to speak i think he's doing good work with that show oh yeah great work and it it, it... I've noticed that he's become
0: kind of a networker for folks,
1: uh, which is a a nice
0: side benefit. Yeah,
1: Yeah, really? That's true. That's what I actually, it's, it's very close to what I told him. I said, you know, you're kind of building bridges between cultures and communities and religions and, and getting people to have conversations that, uh, I think are hugely important. I mean, I I'm in Louisiana, you know, and, uh, Truth. The truth of the matter is, is I think we desperately need more conversations like that down here. I mean, we need them everywhere, but... So that's partly why I'm talking to you today, actually, just to bring. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) It's it's to bring that to the people here who listen to me, but also to my listeners all over the place. But so just for a quick minute, if you could, I I know you've probably been asked this question a countless number of times. If you could give a little rundown of who I'm talking to today for the listeners. So, so I don't screw it up. (laughs) <laughs> sure. Uh, my name is Mado Moore, and
0: uh, I'm a Zen Buddhist priest, and I serve as the abbot of Korinji, which is a uh, monastery in the Rinzai Zen lineage. And uh, We're located in Wisconsin. Uh, that's, that's my main activity and what I do full-time. And uh, we have a few folks up here doing uh, traditional monastic training in the thousand year old Rinzai Zen style in the middle of the Wisconsin forest of all places so it's, it's quite amazing
1: it's a beautiful place I, I you know I follow you on Facebook and so you post a, a regular stream of images and I, yeah. I can't lie it's it's fascinating to me I mean I I want to put myself there you know uh, whenever I well, see I'm trying some to of the I'm trying to hook everybody I can you know yeah. that's my bait yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I listened to another interview with you and uh, the person interviewing you had said something like, how do you, uh, how do you pitch uh, the, the monastery to people? Are you, are, are you doing that? And you said, oh, I'm actually trying to discourage people. And, I, and you laughed. And I, I was like, you know, I would love to hear more about what you mean by that because I, I kind of felt like I knew what <laughs> you meant. But I, uh, I thought that would be a kind of fun place to start. <laughs>
0: Oh, sure. I mean, in one sense, I you knew I want to encourage people and, and you know, social media, things like Facebook and podcasts like yours have been fantastic for letting people know we exist and giving them a sense of what we're doing here. But uh, people who are attracted to this kind of practice um, are attracted for the right reasons, but oftentimes do not have a sense of what it really entails and, and how rigorous it is. And, and it is really an exhaustive, uh, difficult kind of training. Um, that being said, the rewards or the benefits of, of it are immense. But uh, I guess I want to encourage people to explore it, to explore Zen and Buddhism and, and this kind of uh, deeply embodied meditation practice that we do. But then if someone says, oh, I'm interested to come to the monastery, the first thing I have to do is pop most of their illusions I think a lot, a lot of people think that it's a this kind of place must be a very calm, deeply spiritual relaxing sort of retreat and um, it's not that it's you know we're deeply spiritual in a way but it's a place where you're uh, brought to the, the extremes of facing yourself and seeing what's inside your own mind and how to function with your own body mind in the most efficient way it's very 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 rigorous intense training i think it's more akin to uh, you know boot camp than it is to a relaxing resort vacation <laughs> that's yeah a, that's the first thing we need to let people
1: know yeah okay well that that actually leads right into something that i kept thinking about as i was reading your book and, and it's something that oh maybe doesn't maybe the word bother isn't right but it's something that's sort of pinged in my brain over and over throughout the years and it's and it's when somebody typically and i would say western culture especially when you when someone uses the word zen I almost have to stop Mm. right there and go, I I need to know what you're talking about when you say that word before we can go any further. Because for a lot of folks, it means, you know, a white room with a a simple pedestal and a a, a a one single vase with a flower in it. And that's Zen. And in a sense, Mm -hmm. it's more an aesthetic to a lot of people, as I've discovered and they'll, they'll call things, Oh, that's very Zen. And what you just described, uh, kind of cuts through that, right? I mean, you said, Oh, this is more like in a serious way, like akin to boot camp
0: Yeah. Zen culture or Zen art or aspects of what are really Japanese culture primarily, or, or aspects of Chinese culture, like Chinese ink painting and so on that are very attractive to people. Um, have been labeled with the term Zen. And there's some truth to that in that Zen was a, has been a tremendous influence uh, on East Asian aesthetic culture. But when we're talking about Zen Buddhism as a practice, as a spiritual uh, discipline of body and mind, or what is essentially a yogic discipline, um, so the yogic, what I call the yogic branch of spirituality, which is not primarily faith-based or not uh, primarily based based on theology, but based on deep exploration of mind and body through various practices. Um, it's an exhaustive, exhaustive process, and there, there's nothing sometimes calm and pleasant about facing oneself in the mirror of practice. Mm. Um, we get to drill down into our own minds using meditation and other embodied disciplines and, and see exactly how depraved we all are. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and uh, that's the starting point of our training, is, is to see that. That it's um, not always so relaxed and calm, calm. but uh, again, it's it's very profound practice, and I think the end result of it is a, a very balanced, compassionate, clear human being. That's our ideal. Uh, but yeah, certainly much more than a austere vase in a white room. There's yeah. no doubt about that.
1: Yeah, it's like the trappings of it. That's that's one thing I've always been fascinated by. Is uh, and almost where I live, to be honest with you, I'm not. You're, there's not a lot of exposure to any Buddhist teachings. There are no uh, Dharma centers. You know, we're in a Mm -hmm. predominantly 50-50 mix between Catholic culture and Protestant Christianity. So, you know, the exposure is just not there. So when Zen is mentioned, Mm -hmm. uh, it's only in very, very small pockets of, uh, I guess the word would be enthusiasts, maybe, because, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't Mm -hmm. know personally any true... Uh, practitioners, I guess, that's, that are really committed on the level that, that you you and the and people at your monastery obviously are. So yeah, it's interesting. I, In fact, you know, as I was reading your book, I, I had to rewind a little bit in my mind and go back in time because I was thinking back to, well, hold on, I'm going to put a pen right there and explain this a little better. So I had an experience in my 20s, and it was sort of like a I, looking back on it, I would almost say it was like like what you described. It was a really hard look in the mirror, but it happened very rapidly. I saw my ugliness, I would say, my demons really quickly. And in that really quick time period, there was like this one day of almost like a sudden flash Of clarity almost like realization where I could see it all and it really changed my life I didn't know what it was didn't even know how to label that so I went on this sort of uh, (laughs) search in the wild so to speak you know through religions and cultures trying to understand and so Buddhism ultimately Came in to the uh, in up, came in front of me and on that journey and Zen as well, you know, as in a particular path. But uh, so I found language in there that I was really fascinated by. But your book, as I was reading it, I kept thinking, "Man, I, this was the book <laughs> right here." Because you, the especially the first <laughs> half, I was like, "This is because I, I highlight." You know, like anybody, you highlight and you make notes as you f- stumble upon things that or of particular interest. But what I started noticing in your book was that I would practically highlighted most of the book because I was like, okay, I might as well not have highlighted anything at all because it's so rich in that regard. You, you outline things so well and clear and you cover all of these things that I felt like I, I had to stumble upon. Uh, collectively over the years so i want to just say in my opinion as however humble that may be i i appreciate a work like that and i think of a tw- I, I, I was thinking about our talk today and i thought man how different things are uh, it, maybe there's a 20 year old young man or woman out there who will listen to this conversation and, and go you know i'm 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 at that point and i'm looking for guidance, you know, and and like me, they don't they don't have proximity to a teacher and life circumstances don't put that in front of you. Uh I'm hoping that they will stumble upon this and then stumble upon your work, honestly.
0: Oh, that's very gracious. And uh to think that the book could do that for someone really leaves me feeling gratified because I think, like many people who write something, I ended up writing the kind of book that I wish I had had. Yeah. And uh, I don't always assume that that means it's going to be useful to others too, but I, I sincerely hope it is. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned enthusiasts. Um, a, lot, a lot of folks who are interested in Zen are really just on that level of being an enthusiast, but that's how we start. And uh, even how Zen started here in the States with the uh, beats, the beat writers, Kerouac, and so on, um, some of whom went on to become serious practitioners, but initially we would just call them enthusiasts, but they really laid the foundation of something that was an alternative view or uh, you know, exposure to a different tradition from the mainstream. Um, so I would encourage anyone listening, you know, of course, if the book is helpful, that's great, but uh, your enthusiasm or initial interest, even if later on we might consider it a little shallow uh, that's how we all started. That's the gate. And uh, just start exploring, man. Get out there and, and, and read and, and be voracious and travel and meet teachers. And that's how we all did it.
1: Yeah, see, that's what I should have done, I guess. And in, in hindsight, we all have that, I guess. And... uh is, I should have traveled more in my youth and uh but you know we all take these paths that we do and you make <laughs> sometimes poor decisions with limited information <laughs> and so you get on a track and that was one thing that I always found interesting was how easily uh you can get on a track and then truck along and not realize that you're on it or that you're really being pushed by a momentum that's uh, it's almost habit energy, you know, and then you look back and a lot of mm-hmm. years go by and it's like, well, how, how, uh, how did this happen? How did I get so far down this track? You know, and I find that like Zen, it, it can kind of break that in a way. And it's a lot like what you described about it being a boot camp. Like when I think of Zen now, I think of it as something that almost crashes through you uh, know, in, in almost mm-hmm. sometimes a messy way, even like it's like, OK, there's actually ne- a great crashing that needs to happen and needs to cut through all of this, uh, this and that. I think about the, the mm-hmm. I call it the curse of this and that it's like uh, in your book, you kind of get into a lot of that, that that territory about the um, dualism, you know, seeing one mm-hmm. thing as separate and then I am separate and how that begins sort of this. For me, again, that like that track I get I got on where I just was going forward, and it was all about the eye, eye-driven mm-hmm. uh, reality, you know. And and, and mm-hmm. so, how does is practicing Zen? I mean, for the listeners who maybe this is their first foray into that world. How does how does Zen approach that? Because it is to me like a disease. In fact, you use the word medicine. I think several times in your book, and I loved that—that mm-hmm. that it was like a medicine or a balm.
0: Yeah, that's that's an old Buddhist expression. I mean, to, the Buddha's words um, themselves you know, speak in that way that the teachings are like a medicine for the disease of our own ignorance and delusion. Um, you know the, the process can be messy or not messy. It really depends on the person. But the thing is, we all have messiness. Um, I, I don't know anyone who does a deep self-exploration in any tradition. You know, and I don't. I don't say Zen is the only path that's useful to people. You know, I think of you mentioned uh, Catholic culture around you. I think of the Catholic contemplatives, like the Carmelites. I mean, yeah. those guys are doing uh, very profound inner spiritual exploration. So any kind of tradition like that. Um, there's going to be messiness. The, the techniques themselves can be very sharp and precise and razor-like in their application but what you end up with is this open <laughs> bleeding body <laughs> on the table and, and it takes a while to, to, to get that stitched back together in a way. But um, I, I think anyone who encounters the Buddhist teachings about dualism or, or the, the sort of uh, fact that our ideas of self are not quite as accurate as we think they are, anyone who encounters that and isn't a little frightened or a little put off by it probably didn't really grasp it Mm. very well. So in the beginning, uh, you know, we can talk about boot camp, but I I guess what I want to say is in the beginning, there's also very approachable ways and there's gradual ways and there's many, many tools in the Zen toolbox to help someone gradually approach the tradition and begin to sort of dissolve their own obstructions through practice that aren't all necessarily crashing through more mm. dramatic yeah. or you know the 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 messiness can be all at once, or it can be a little bit at a time. (laughs) Yeah, We we have to find the approach that fits each person, if that makes sense.
1: No, it absolutely does. It's interesting. I, as I'm listening to you talk, sometimes when I'm listening or talking with the guests, I get these sort of visualizations in my mind and listening to you describe that it kind of reminds me of this beautiful heat lightning storm we had here a couple of years ago. And it was really something to see. Mm. And, uh, i We turned all the lights off in our home so I could really go outside and see it. It was really dramatic, and I was filming out there because it was like for split seconds, you know lightning crash seconds it was like dawn. you could see the entire neighborhood it was almost like uh h d you know and It Mm -hmm. it reminds me sort of like what practice is like or any kind of contemplative practice. It's like you get these flashes, at least for me, where all of a sudden everything, the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful, the glorious, you know, it's all illuminated just for a split second. And if you could, you can capture Mm -hmm. that. And I guess in a way, that's kind of what I've almost been chasing. Maybe chasing is not the right word. Uh falling towards, you know, like that kind of thing where mm-hmm. these moments like that and when they hit, whether it be, you know, looking at the bird's feet on the bird feeder and, and being in that moment of time with them or maybe in the the pain or the sorrow of losing my father, it was very illuminated, uh, even though it was mm-hmm. painful. And and yeah, that moment may have been a crashing through, but, you know, you can also have that moment and it's almost like the same thing to me, I guess, whenever you're looking at a rainbow, you know, that it suddenly appears and it's very vivid. And that's the same kind of thing. I don't know if I'm even making any sense. I'm kind of rambling here in, in my own head. But uh, <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, no, you're making great sense. I mean, even those painful experiences have a, a freshness or a rawness to them that can be the gateway to a kind of clarity or it can help us to. Uh, experience our sort of own intrinsic clarity, uh, even more so than pleasant experiences sometimes. We we can use any of those things. So uh, if you can use even something as sorrowful as the loss of a loved one as a sort of entrance into a new perspective or a new way of seeing, that's what we call Zen training. Yeah. I mean, we have many practices to help us do that, but essentially it's that, it's to use all the experiences of life whether they're so-called good or bad, to help us revisit and remember, and then eventually to embody this intrinsic clarity which we have. Okay. And in that sense, it's not so mysterious. Yeah.
1: So, okay, that kind of uh, visually, again, I'm thinking about some of the things I've seen on your Facebook page, some of the pictures, and I, I see you doing something that looks like waterfall training uh, or some kind of waterfall <laughs> meditation. <laughs> And I mean, is that is saying, yeah. speaking of what we just talked about right there, you know, experiencing the good and the bad, is there any element of that that would relate to that type of training? You know, where I see it. Yeah, yeah, because it's unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> because it's bad, right? Well, is it, though? I mean, that's kind of what I wondered about that. I kind of, you know, I've tried to do these imagination exercises. And when I see these pictures, I, I go, okay, so what is this like, you know, to. Because, I mean, you know, I meditate and most of the time it's in a very comfortable environment, but I've also been in great pain physically. And so being with that pain to some degree, even though the pain hasn't changed, the perception of the pain sometimes changes. And I don't want to say that the pain doesn't hurt. You know, sure, I don't want to sound like uh, Jesse Ventura from Predator, but, you know, pain don't hurt. But sometimes it doesn't when, you, when you're with it, I guess. And so it made me think of this waterfall, these images I've seen. It's I don't know. I was kind of fascinated by that. I, I was playing in my own head Ooh. trying to imagine what that's like. Obviously, I would love to hear <laughs> hear from you Like some of the sure. thoughts behind that.
0: That's called in Japanese called takigyo, which, which literally means waterfall training. And it's actually not um, a Zen practice per se. It's more typically encountered in the tradition called Shugendo. Uh, in which I am also ordained but it's, it's another Buddhist tradition in coming out from Japanese culture which uh, happens to involve a lot of practices or austerities that are done in nature mm-hmm. like in a waterfall and uh, the interesting thing about that training as I have experienced it is that uh, you know standing under an icy cold waterfall is not something you would call pleasant or that most people would seek uh, most people like the hot shower, right? <laughs> but you stand under something icy like that, and even in winter we can do it, uh, you know, when the weather's not warm. But the moment the water impacts you, and there's a, there's a preparatory process and a ritual to enter the waterfall with a mantra and mudra and, we, and certain kind of breathing we can do and so on. But the minute the water hits you, the shock of the cold causes the usual uh, sort of mental spinning, sort of discursive habit of the mind chattering to itself and and that dualistic fixation that that usual way of seeing which is very self-referential and i focused and i'm inside here the universe is out there and, and so on at that moment the shock of the water causes all of that momentarily to collapse the mind just uh, it can't sustain it it stops and a moment later it it could you know you know sort of click in again because of habit but if you have the presence of mind you know also through meditation practice you have the clarity in that moment when the water hits to catch that moment of clearness mm. you can sustain it you can remain in it so the water itself becomes kind of a gateway to seeing in a more clear more real less self-fixated manner uh, and then you know once the water hits you you remain under the waterfalls for some period of time you're chanting you're using mantra uh, as a means to focus and resonate the body with a particular vibration. So you start to again use the mind and body to exchange the way you experience. but the, the unique part of it again, to me is that that shock, that first moment when the hits yeah. you. <laughs> I, I couldn't call it pleasant. Just like the pain of meditation you mentioned, it's not pleasant, but it's so raw and so real. And at that moment, the usual way of thinking, we, we get knocked out from our habit. Uh, that's the opportunity for in, for insight to come.
1: That's fascinating. So, so th- yeah. That's how you could, uh,
0: yeah, you could understand that practice maybe more deeply if you look at it that way.
1: Yeah, I love that. I mean, it kind of gets me thinking about it when we get stuck on this sort of cyclical things going on in our minds or even just being on mm-hmm. a track, you know, as I said earlier, where you've dug these ruts and your wheels don't want to get off because you've just got these ruts that you keep driving through. And that practice It it seems like it just shocks you. It's almost like a big shove, you know, to, yeah, to, to get very you much out of so. that. Very much so. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. And, and everything would I, which
0: I would consider myself, you know, my memories, my story and my prejudices, my likes, my dislikes that moment. when the water hits, that stuff's not there, it's gone. <laughs> There's just a clear awareness, and you can feel, somehow through your body, you can feel all the way upstream to the end of the valley. You can feel all the way downstream to where the water goes. Even your perception of your bodily uh, uh, boundaries changes. So, I, you know, from a Buddhist standpoint, it's a more clear, more real way of seeing. And the fact that we're standing under a waterfall is just a method, just the tool to get to that.
1: It, it kind of echoes of like sweat lodge almost to some degree i mean it kind of mm. makes me get a little bit of that vibe you know that that's sort of similar in that regard am i often saying that
0: i don't think so i think it's the same way to sort of experiment with the body and uh-huh. the mind to see how we can can change our way of experiencing and there's actually a practice not unlike that also in shugendo i, I can't really talk about the details but uh, not not really a sweat lodge but a Situation like that, where you go into an oppressive, sort of hot ah. or, or difficult environment, and you just stay with it, and you relax into it, and something, some kind of realization can come from that. Yeah, yeah. very interesting.
1: That is interesting. I think I think you I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. I, I, maybe you're. One of the things that was very different about this. Uh, your your book, Rinzai Zen, too, was uh, the physical Ooh. aspect of it. I, I thought that was fascinating because that's something that I, again, with enthusiasm, you can tend to go, Oh, you know, I want to disconnect, right? Like that's almost like another of those novel Zen ideas that it gets sort of infused in the culture where it's like, Oh, well, Zen is like disconnecting, it's checking out from the stress. And that may be part of it, that may be true, but, uh, You know, I am not my body. I'm throwing out all the tropes, you know, Mm -hmm. and and so when I'm reading Mm -hmm. your book, you're like, oh, no, the body is definitely a part of this. The body is Mm -hmm. hyper important. Yeah, we talk about the body mind.
0: Uh, It's not that they're not separate in a way, but they're also not separate. Uh, We have to use what we can harness and use both of them. And I guess that in a nutshell defines what I call the yogic approach to spirituality. Um, I think a lot of Western spirituality, because of our philosophical tradition and, and the directions that theology have gone, um, we do have this, again, talking about dualism, this real idea of matter and spirit being separate things, and one is not so pure, it's to be negated, one is to be sought, it's pure. That That is... Um, a kind of theory which doesn't hold in the whole stream of spirituality of which Buddhism is a part. Um, The body and matter and this world are precisely to be used and valued and they're encompassed within the spirituality. They're a gateway to realization, not an obstacle to it in a sense, so when we do meditation we sit in a particular posture, we breathe a particular way, we have a way to use the mind, we use our senses in a particular manner. It's only because I have a body that I can do that practice. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. the value of it. And then I could change my spiritual understanding and my way of experiencing thing and and you know, we believe even the, the, the direction of my existence in a lasting manner. By means of the body. Uh, so to have a healthy body that you can do spiritual practice with not a you know body is not a curse it's a gift it's an incredible opportunity that's the perspective of our
1: tradition i'm happy i know i'm i hate to pause the program but i want to ask you something did you know that you can help me and my team at parker brand creative services grow the find the good news signal for less than a fancy cup of coffee you can become an early risers club patron on our patreon page what's patreon well it's a way for creators to fund their projects by pooling support from those really passionate people that believe in what they're doing. Do you believe in what we're doing with Find the Good News? I hope you do. We believe that there's already enough negative news in the world, even right here at home, and that good people doing good works deserve a platform to speak from, too. That's why we created Find the Good News, and we believe in that simple mission. Maybe you believe in it, too. If you do believe in finding and sharing good news, then head over to our Patreon page right now or check out the link in the show description. For a commitment of $3.33 a month, you can join the Early Risers Club of Find the Good News Patreon supporters and get access to The B-Sides, a patrons-only podcast with the crew behind Find the Good News Parker Brand Creative Services. Each time we level up, the Patreon rewards will get bigger. If you're tired of old news, bad news, and fake news, help support Find the Good News at Patreon.com/slash/Find the Good News. That's Patreon.com/slash/Find the Good News. Now back to the episode. One of one of the great treasures of my life was the uh, sort of sideways an accidental way i first heard someone read shantadeva and i remember Mm. hearing it i didn't know what it was i was hearing but i remember feeling like i was hearing the truth that's the oh that's the best way i could describe it it was like a very clear resonance like oh this is true what i am hearing is true and there was this the one line that really sticks out and it reminds me of what you're saying was very short having well obtained this human existence i have been born in the family of buddha and boy everything oh, yeah. you just said i mean sometimes we can forget that what a great treasure it is to be a human being to have this body well, for- and this existence
0: from the buddhist standpoint it's the- extraordinarily rare to be born, to, to come into existence in a place where the teachings exist with a healthy mind and body. And also to, to have the interest in the teachings, to have the opportunity to encounter them, all of those things, so rare as to be miraculous. So, you know, someone like you You encountered the word, even the word Buddhism or the word Zen, just to hear that word in your existence means you're so incredibly fortunate.
1: (laughs) You have very deep karmic roots. (laughs) You talked about that in your book, and I was sucked down that tunnel. I was like, I never really (laughs) stopped to sit with that and think, what a blessing. You know, to, I mean, I could have been born in, in the whole lineage of, and you and all of us, you know, the whole line of your ancestors comes to this point, and you go, oh, that's right. Wow. In the whole, all of this blood and DNA and history and suffering and joy and pain. And then in this, it rises up in you and you get to, yeah, your book really clearly pointed that out. I, I don't want to, I'll, I'll go off on a whole tangent about it. Cause I was my, you know, my mind was kind of lit up when I read that part. Cause I thought, what a treasure, <laughs> you know, it really is a treasure. And I, you, and I can see why someone, a teacher would want to Tr- share that treasure because you found a treasure. Yes. I mean, is that accurate?
0: Oh yeah. I mean, I, I, I would never say that this tradition is for everybody. I mean, everyone, if they have interest, it's for them. If they don't have interest, that's, that's, we would say that's their karma, but, mm. you know, it's, it's available to them, but I could say for myself that it would saved my life. And, uh, completely transformed the direction of my own life I think without the training that I undertook that I'd be a fairly useless selfish self-absorbed person I I still am those things to some degree, but I (laughs) I would be much more than I am (laughs) Um, yeah yeah, if I could share it in some small way and, and as a someone who has the title of teacher I feel strongly that obligation to do so obviously um, that's the only way I could somehow begin to repay the debt I owe to my own teachers and to the lineage of the teachers through history. It will never be sufficient, but at least I could try to repay that a little
1: bit. Yeah. I was thinking about you. Um, so I've been reading your book over the last month, you know, in a, in a comfortable pace. And I was thinking about you one morning of course, obviously I hadn't talked to you yet, but I mean, you know, you, you put so much out in the book that it gives Mm -hmm. you so much to really chew on. And I go on these bike rides out in the country out here and it's dandelion season. And as I noticed, as I was riding, there would be these clusters of dandelions, you know, on the side of the road or out in the field, but they would all be kind of clustered together. And then you would have this big gap and then you'd see another little cluster and they'd be you know different size clusters and so one day i i went and i the ones that had went to seed i tend to go, I'd go foraging in the woods for like wildflowers and stuff and find seed heads so that one day i said you know i've never really uh harvested dandelions because they're everywhere you know who was going to harvest dandelions but I, as i was picking those heads up it got me thinking about your monastery and and the transmission of teaching and i thought you know sometimes So these dandelions one little dandelion seed could go five six seven miles before it lands somewhere and takes root and from that one little seed you'll get these little clusters like that and i thought of your monastery and i thought of the transmission of teaching and as you were outlining some of that in your book and i thought that's very much like this the way these dandelions cluster together you know and Sometimes you just have a wild seed. You don't know who's going to hear it. Who's going to hear something that you've taught and it's going to take root in them. You know, that, that's a fascinating thing. And that's, I don't know. I think that's a beauty, uh, the treasure of a teaching and, and in your position, I think it's almost like me harvesting those dandelion heads. You, you've got a monastery, uh, and that's kind of what's happening. You know, you're, you're consciously planting them in a pot, so to speak you know, so they can all yeah. come up together. That's a beautiful thing. There's um,
0: the famous Zen master Dogen, who's the mm. founder of the Soto school, not, not the Rinzai school, but the Soto school of Japan. Uh, I don't remember the exact quote, but he, he uh, said upon one occasion that uh, the merit, the, the blessing of starting a temple or a monastery was so great that even if it failed, even if you only were able to construct one pillar, Mm. It was still worth doing. So I've tried to keep those words in mind as we've you know, gone through the difficult process of getting this place started. And, you know, even if it shuts down next year, we, we have no idea. But we don't, we never know what's going to happen. But some seed someplace in the future could be useful. Or even through this podcast, maybe that's what it's all for. I have to have that faith.
1: Yeah, that... <laughs> One thing that I guess I've uh, hungered for but have never experienced is uh, that direct transmission of a teaching from a teacher. And you talk about the importance of that in Zen. And and in fact, I think you said, and maybe all Zen teaching said this, that if there is no teacher, it really isn't. It can't be really called Zen. And so I wonder about these, these people out there in the world like me who are like displaced, you know, like you go, okay, mm-hmm. uh, there are no te- I mean, within no reasonable proximity, there are no teachers. Uh, mm-hmm. but yet you have an enthusiasm and an attraction to a teaching. What do you suggest mm-hmm. for people like that? I mean, you know, that you just can't pack up and go and go find a teacher. How, do you just, is that sure? You know, that's, that's a challenge. I know a lot of Americans are facing right now too, for sure. in, in uncertain times.
0: Sure. It's definitely a challenge, and yet, again, being born where and when we have been, uh, so much less of a challenge than it has been in the past. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't remember if I wrote this in the book, but, uh, you know, when Zen came to China or to Japan, the Chinese teachers had to travel a hazardous voyage ah, <laughs> you know, yeah. by car- caravan and then by ship to Japan, or the Japanese monks who who were hungry for the teachings had to go to China and risk shipwreck and bandits and everything just to go to meet that one person. Mm. And today we can talk the way we're talking now, right? So yes. we have a lot or we can hop on a plane and be someplace True. in a day, yeah. anywhere in the world. So so we have much easier situation now. But the, the book I really did write for people in that situation so that they could have some basic conceptual framework or foundation and then a certain amount of practical Practice that they can start to work Mm. with on their own. And there's a lot in there that people can start to work with until they do meet someone. That being said, I don't think it's necessary to live near your teacher necessarily. Um, If one is able to meet that person face-to-face, especially in a retreat situation, Mm. uh, a couple times a year, that could be enough. And there were long periods of time where my main teacher... Actually, he was an abbot of a temple in Hawaii, so we didn't see him that often just during special retreats throughout the year. But it's still enough to go forward as long as you have that ongoing guidance and input to keep you on track. When we say that Zen can't be done alone, it just means that, you know, as, as deluded people, we're the least, least qualified to guide ourselves. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. we need someone else to, to kind of help us to see through our own stuff. Um, but the real bulk of the work is still going to be done on one's own at home. So mm. there's no real obstacle, no great barrier to it. If one can develop that relationship, even from a distance, check in from time to time, it could be enough. So I want to encourage people. Yeah. Uh, if they're interested to do that, they, they can try to do that.
1: Yeah. I, I, that's wonderful advice, you know, because I've, I've always held that any teaching or practice has to work. In all the situations I'm going to find myself in, whether I'm standing in line at the grocery store or in traffic or, you know, comforting my children or even having to defend something or, or, uh, you know, a cause. It has to work Mm -hmm. in those things. And if it does, it fall apart. I've always asked myself that, you know, does this shatter whenever it's tested? Uh, And so, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense to the way you're outputting that. I, I did find that fascinating, though, because you talked about being in the presence of uh, a realized teacher and the energy Mm. of that. And so if you could talk a little bit about that, I I thought that was kind of fascinating because, I I mean, immediately coming from a Christian culture, I thought, oh, this must be very much what the disciples of Jesus must have felt like or or Mm -hmm. what they were getting from being in in front of their teacher, you know, like that, that this was a direct transference and the affinity to him. Uh, in that relationship, how mm. valuable that was.
0: And not even Christ, but uh, even uh, great saints. You know, yeah. I think to meet someone like St. Francis, for example, there must have been a certain charisma, uh, a certain energetic feeling around someone like that. So we recognize the same thing. And that's, again, one of the reasons why training with someone face-to-face in person is important, because you're not just learning a body of intellectual knowledge, you're learning a new way of mind-body functioning, and a new way of seeing, um, a new way of experiencing your own intrinsic wisdom. And the the knowledge of how to do that has to come from someone who's modeling it themselves, or manifesting it themselves. You can catch that energetically from them. Uh, I often use the example the same way that a vibrating guitar string can make an adjacent string vibrate. Ah. That's the kind of model of the transmission between a teacher and student. So, when you meet great teachers, you could be changed just by their presence. And the students who carry on their teachings or, or become successors of those people, like the disciples of Christ, are transformed by that energetic field. And come to embody themselves, and so can maybe transmit it to the next generation. That's the, I don't think that's unique to Buddhism, that idea. We have a terminology for it, and we acknowledge it, and we talk about it a lot. But I think even when it's not so explicitly explained, uh, most spiritual traditions can uh, recognize that experience. You know, know, even doesn't have to be a spiritual tradition. Sometimes you meet someone who just has a certain quality about them that makes you feel great, Mm. and you feel transformed by being around them. The kind of vibration between humans we could recognize right so yeah I, maybe I zen that. is one way to cultivate that
1: i love what you said about the guitar string that is actually beautiful I'll, i'm that's going to really stick with me or, or vibrate with me uh so to speak <laughs> <Good. laughs> yeah you know, you're you're getting into yeah. one more really important thing that i noted that i wanted to talk about and you've said it a few times and it's all of them have been great segues but um you just mentioned saint francis and that kind of brings me kind of full circle to one of the things you talked about which was using iconography or statues as a way to learn as well and so i'll segue into that by saying Mm -hmm. and why why saint francis is important my time in catholic culture uh saint francis was one of those icons really for me and i remember and, and i still carry a bunch of catholic cards with me As I was reading your book, I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, this is very similar to kind of this personal practice I have with these Catholic saints. You know, I know they were just people, you know, they were people just like you and I. But the iconography and the way they're standing and the item they may be holding or the way their hand is postured is a lesson into itself and just meditating on those those icons like that has been almost a teacher and an energy that comes from them in a way for me, sometimes I will, for simply I will practice, let's say I'll draw a St. Francis card. And so for that day, Mm -hmm. I will say, okay, today I will think of St. Francis and the way he's portrayed here without his shoes and his humble apparel and learn from just the image itself. So anyway, I say all that to mean to get around to what you talked about in your book. That's a part of your practice as well. Correct?
0: very much so you know that's the power of sacred art and that's the power of ritual and that's the power of sacred places Uh, you know a a beautiful cathedral or church Um, you could have a feeling there which transform you just just by entering the space and the catholic tradition i value so so highly because it it retains that understanding of how to use those things in the way that you described you know even even the the central ritual being mass yeah the moment that the host is elevated and the bell is rung, that traditional understanding is that's the moment that the energetic connection with God is happens. It literally happens, not just a, a you know conceptual or symbolic yeah, way. right. We we could believe that that happens, yeah. And yeah. I believe that a, a powerful religious image or icon. You can catch something energetic from it that can transform you. There's no doubt about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I had really, that's helped me a lot of times and probably saved me from myself Uh, (laughs) more (laughs) times than I can count. I mean, even recently, I um, kind of was going through a time where I was, I almost felt like I was picking up just residual stuff off of other people and just carrying it around in myself. And I didn't know what to do with it. It was really creating this charge, mm. right? And that charge had nowhere to go. And one afternoon I was looking at this statue of the Buddha that I have and, and I, 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 he's touching the earth with his hand and I'm going, you know, all these years I've, I just kind of never really stopped to think of just the value of flesh on the earth. And so I went to the park, found a quiet place. No one was out there. And I took my shoes off, sat on the ground and put my hands on the ground. And it was the most healing thing. And it was just such a Mm -hmm. simple, plain lesson that I'm going, I've been walking right by this statue and recognizing, oh, that's the Buddha, not really looking at the what he was doing and and on that particular day it had value and as a lesson you know an unspoken lesson
0: well that's and that right there is yogic practice in other words how can I use my body in particular ways to change how I experience Mm. you could catch it from the the Buddha statue and many of the gestures we call you know we call them uh, mudras Mm. many of the postures the ways of sitting the the symbolism of the objects that are held just as, as you mentioned with your cards uh, we can use all that stuff that way. But, but the point is, it, it has to go beyond just the conceptual content. When we let it come into the body and we actually physically use it, then the mind can change mm. much more rapidly than if we try to change the mind using just the mind. Yeah, <laughs> our, our way is to use the body to change the mind.
1: Yeah, yeah that's something that I definitely am going, uh, going to take away. Uh, From your book and just from this conversation, because I'm definitely guilty uh, of thinking and conceptualizing. In fact, I remember when I was going through some Catholic training years ago, uh, I almost was a little I have brought this up a few times on this show because I was almost a little uh, sad. I mean, that's the only way to describe it. I, I mean, I was a little disappointed maybe because we were doing a lot of book learning and I, I noticed that there was, n- I was going sitting in a chair, watch a video, read a book. And I was like, okay, I want to go do something. Like, I want to feel this. Mm-hmm. I don't just want to think about it. And so mm-hmm. you definitely, your book to me, that was one of the big takeaways. I was like, okay, it's as a holistic approach. It's not just conceptualizing awakening or having great perspectives on things and that's all well and good but it's also i've got to feel this in my body and to make my body more a part of it not just my brain and my skull i guess my thinking
0: well that's why it's so great if you have a chance or if anyone who's you know who has a catholic background has a chance to go hang out with some of the contemplative orders uh you know go to gethsemane in kentucky for example uh those people can show you what embodied spirituality is <laughs> no, ah, no doubt you're talking my and language. even practices <laughs> yeah Martin, even practices <laughs> like the rosary i think oh, oh yeah but even something like the rosary i think is fantastic um you're using using your body in a minimal way you know you're holding the rosary but you're also visualizing you're reciting praying i mean there, there are a lot of rich there's a richness of practice in the tradition that has that angle if you know where to see it
1: yeah, 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 yeah. When you strip off, like, maybe the words associated with these things, you can look at them. I, I totally get that. I, I I felt that many times when I was in Catholic culture that I was seeing, some, you know, coming at it, having traditionally looked at things, I guess, from a Buddhist perspective, coming into Catholic culture was very interesting because you do see Zen, you do see these... Practices that are almost outside of being labeled to some degree, you know, they they are mm-hmm. pure And mm-hmm. so without the calling it this or calling it that you, you you could transplant one for the other, you know Very 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 similar yeah. things happening there. You're right. It's it's a beautiful thing I I do wish deeply that there was a more of an awareness Uh in my community uh, Like that I think we'd have mm-hmm. a uh, you'd see a lot more experiential awakenings, I guess, happening. I really think you would, because it's, it's a little bit more like a tribe or a culture, I guess, where I live, if that makes any sense. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not in maybe that that area where there's a, a monastery or a contemplative practice in any in any proximity. So I don't sure. get to see it too often. And I'm happy. I know This episode's Fishing for Goodies fishbowl sponsor is Brimstone Museum and Henning Cultural Center in Sulphur, Louisiana. I don't know what you look for when you travel, but one of the things I look for when I'm putting together my itinerary is a unique museum or gallery in the city I'm traveling to. I do this almost every time I go to a new city, but if I'm being honest, I'm guilty of not always doing that very thing right here at home in Sulphur, Louisiana. That's really a shame because we have one of the most interesting, historically relevant and culturally rich corners in any city in the country about two minutes from where I'm sitting right now. I'm talking about the Brimstone Museum and Henning Cultural Center. Have you ever really thought about why our city is named sulfur? They've got a permanent exhibit on the history of the sulfur industry that answers that simple question and more. You really get a full scope of just how important the sulfur mining industry was to the development of Southwest Louisiana and the impact it had on the rest of the world. Yes, the rest of the world. On the same property, right next door to the museum is the Henning Cultural Center, presenting some of the most interesting, modern, and culturally relevant local art shows I've ever seen. My dear friend Tom Trahan and the Brimstone Historical Society have really worked hard to give us this treasure, and it's a multifaceted jewel that I plan to take advantage of more often. You don't have to wonder what their hours are, or how to get there, or what shows are coming up. Just go to brimstonemuseum.org, like I did, and subscribe to their mailing list right there on the homepage that's brimstonemuseum.org Tom will make sure you start getting the announcements for each and every new show at the gallery but you don't have to wait for the mail to arrive to enjoy this historical local treasure you don't have to be guilty like me of overlooking a local wonder that conveniently sits next to the Grove one of the most beautiful walking parks in Southwest Louisiana drop in and say hi to Tom for me Tour the museum and center, and make sure to tell Tom that you heard about Brimstone Museum on Find the Good News. Now, let's take that dive in the fishbowl. If you listen to the show, you'll see this fishbowl come out quite a bit. And what it is, is <laughs> there's actually 400 questions in there. <laughs> and so what we do with each, <laughs> each guest is we, we draw three questions out, and then we discuss them at the end of the show. All I, right. So I've got to See what the lottery brings. Me. That's right. It's the question lottery. That's a good way to put it. They've always been relevant. I've always thought that was pretty fascinating. It's like a magic eight ball that actually works. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay. Well, this is a nice, good. So this maybe will generate a great story. So this question is: Have you ever given someone a handmade present?
0: Oh yeah, quite often. Um, one of the things that I enjoy doing as a craft, and I have training in and I also use it to support the monastery, is uh, I'm a metal worker. I do forging, uh, oh, particularly wow. bladesmithing. Yeah, Yeah, I yeah. forge knives uh, primarily. And the stuff that I tend to like to make and that people seem to enjoy are kind of uh, 18th and 19th century pattern uh, outdoor knives. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of friends who uh, Outdoorsmen, campers, hikers, um, even one gentleman who's fantastic to, to my mind, the best wilderness survival instructor in the country, is in Kentucky. A uh, gentleman named uh, Craig Caudle, Nature Reliance School.
1: Okay. Uh,
0: but I, I have g- gifted him knives that I make, and uh, yeah, it's it's nice when you make something and you know it's going to be in someone's hand. Yeah, it's a connection to them.
1: I actually yeah. collect knives and use them. The ones I collect, that's so fascinating, man. I have a huge oh, knife. Co- yeah, no, I I, uh, I love knives. I mean, I've, I we have a small family here in our community. They they all the son, the father, and the mother. They all make handmade knives together and. Uh, yeah, beautiful experience to see them do it. It's like a combination of some modern techniques, but the father does more of the uh, forging and stuff sure. like that. But I had no idea that you did that. Yeah, we have an Etsy shop. It's called Bright Forest Forge. Oh, um, okay.
0: Yeah, anyone can check it out. It, but it's a remarkable craft. I, I like it because it's very elemental. You've got fire, you have water, you mm. have the steel, and, of course, your own, your own energetic input of the the hammering and so on. It's – it. Uh, Goes all along very well with Zen training, actually.
1: Man, I could have done a whole podcast about this. I had no idea. Uh, <laughs> no. no, it's fascinating. You just no, spoke my type. language, man. I mean, like the fire. I'm I'm all about that. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like exactly what you said. Especially when you have a blade that somebody gave you. Uh, those are special. I mean, like I even like a hammer. Like I have yeah. one of my father's hammers when he passed away yeah, and it's the one that I always saw him use. He was a carpenter and I I mean, it's sitting right here about five feet from me on a block of wood and it's, it's tattered and torn and the leather straps are all worn off. But I told somebody, I said, that hammer means nothing to anybody else. I said, but to me, it's like it came down from heaven because when I, I know his hand was on it and I, I know all the sweat and the times he bled on it and, the iron, the it's just something about it. There's something very spiritual. I mean, it's like Excalibur, you know?
0: Yeah, his life is in it. And yeah. Now you have it.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm going to definitely yeah. check out your Etsy shop, and uh, I encourage the <laughs> listeners to do that, too. That's a nice little side note. You can probably tell my whole tone changed. I got really excited about that. <laughs> when we get off of our call today, I'm going to go check it out.
0: <laughs> yeah i've got one i know the video is not going to show on the uh the podcast but here's a
1: knife right here that oh is my gosh today. you so you made that god that's yeah. lovely yeah. and i like that's like that's a good hefty knife i mean i'm a, i i have smaller ones but i like the big choppers you know that i can bring out and really put put to work you know <laughs> out in the woods <laughs> nice, nice yeah that's awesome man <laughs> This is a this that's next right. question is is great for a uh, a Zen abbot. Okay, it says what activities make you lose track of time? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because in a way we're we're
0: always on a schedule here. There's always something that's happening at a particular oh, time, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you tend to I lose track of days actually. Ah. So uh, something about living in monastery uh, you you start to go more, more by the light and also by the seasons than you do by the day of the week. So I I guess I would have to say that Zen life has destroyed my concept of calendars.
1: That's wonderful though, (laughs) isn't it? I mean, that sounds, you you just made me think of my, my wife. She, we used to get up at the same time every day. Our phone alarm would go off. And during the uh, pandemic, whenever we had to stay home so much, we turned our alarms off. And so, she woke up with the light and the light comes up, you know, right into our bedroom window. And it's like this little hole in the blinds and it makes this sort of beam that comes right onto the bed. And so that's how she wakes up now. And it's, mm. she said, oh, it's so much yeah. better just to let the light, you know, hit that part of our bed. And it just, I wake up with the light instead of this synthetic bell, you know, their buzz or whatever. Tone. Sure. <laughs> yeah. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Man. For me, it's
0: amazing. It's kind of a new thing and amazing, but, uh, you know, we're in the middle of farm country here surrounded by people who lived that way their whole life. So it's not that unique. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> what you just said reminded me, speaking of Gethsemane, it reminds me of Thomas Merton. You know, he talks about that quite often the sounds of the farms around his hermitage, yeah. you know, and the, yeah. yeah, that's very interesting. All right. So this is your last question. This one's a little heavier. Uh, describe the last time you misjudged a situation. And what you learned from it. Last time I
0: misjudged a situation. And what I learned from it. I mean what I have fresh in my mind. Uh, is a uh, close relationship that recently ended. And uh, I think what I learned f- from that. As one does with friendships or other relationships. That sometimes don't go well. Is how much one's own projection. uh is a layer up on t- top of the person and how much I'm we are reacting to that idea of the person rather than to the, the person in their own rights. And it's unfair to ourselves to do that. It's unfair to the person to do that. Um, I'm ne- I never cease to be amazed, even with all the Zen training I've done, uh, at the extent to which I fabricate my own reality mm. and put it on top of people, put it on top of situations. It's always shocking to see uh, the extent to which that is done and in this particular case quite shocking yeah so
1: that is but, an uh, honest you can't answer take it neg-
0: negatively yeah
1: it is i mean i've i've done the same thing and guilty as charged i have as i listen to you say that i think of immediately of two or three people that i i still continue to do that i mean i've put them in these containers on the shelf and time goes right. by and, they, and in my mind, they don't change. And so I treat them as if they're who they were when I know I'm not who I was, right? So, I mean, but I don't give them the That's same right. uh, courtesy to some degree. And it's very difficult. It's a difficult thing.
0: You know, in Christianity or, or Western traditions tend to talk in terms of forgiveness. Uh, Buddhism tends to talk more in terms of compassion. Yeah. And, uh if we can remember to have to not lose that base compassion for the person, but also for oneself, for having made the errors that we each make, um, there's still a fruitful place within that to renew or or f- form a new relationship, to build something new on the foundations of the old one. I, I like to uh, never close that door.
1: Yeah, no, <laughs> I'm with you. As so, ma- <laughs> that, that's, the, that's the
0: other side of it, yeah
1: yeah compassion is a tr- is a treacherous road it's it can be often painful you know i mean i i believe in it and i want to be more compassionate but i know that sometimes um uh, what i think is compassion I, I think in fact i might have even posted something from your book about that is getting the two things mixed up where it's sentimentality and you think you're being compassionate uh-huh. because you feel so- well, you just feel sorry for somebody or you go well that's that's sad for them compassion's so different yeah. than that, and I get—I I, I walk that tightrope too daily. You know, am I being compassionate, or am I just being yeah, sentimental? You know, it's, it's, thats, that's the I book. often have—I
0: have this image in my mind sometimes of uh, sentimentality or just kind of a base sympathy. Uh, you know, like the old frontier forts. I think of like Daniel Boone days or something. It's like you're behind the log palisade, and you can look out and and feel sorry for someone, but uh, compassion is leaving the fort. Mm, yeah, <laughs> step, 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 stepping out into the wilderness and, and exposing yourself yeah uh that's that's the real thing that takes courage
1: boy that's a great way to put that that's fantastic that's a great takeaway too i have one question left it's not from the fishbowl it's on the back of this yellow mug which you probably can't see but uh we send, we'll send you one of these it says on the front it's got find the good news on oh, the great. back it's got a question And it says, Uh did anything good happen today? And I'll tell you just quickly why that's on there. When I started the show, uh, I realized that sometimes just the way we say something change, just like we just said about people, just the way we ask a question can almost taint the question right from the gate. And so I noticed with my children, after they would get home from school, I would say, so how was your day? or what happened today. And I would notice that we would all kind of gravitate towards the negative. You know, all my teacher gave us this homework or all this person called me this name or, and so you'd, we'd spend a lot of time on these negative things. And so it occurred to me that what if I just changed the way I asked that question? What if I just said, did anything good happen Mm -hmm. today and started Mm -hmm. off right there? All of us started looking for our blessings throughout the day. Instead of focusing on all the, the, the bad things so i've i've i added yeah. it to the to the show you know and said hey i'll ask each guest the same question
0: that's a good question uh yeah just about all of, of it i woke up in a safe place mm. and i woke up to begin with yeah <laughs> <laughs> and i'm relatively healthy and i i was able to walk downstairs where there was breakfast and i had food and uh I could spend time this morning doing spiritual practice, meditation.
1: Paradise. Paradise. It's paradise. Sounds like paradise to me. God, thank you for your time. Yeah. I really appreciate this conversation. Oh, my pleasure. So you have a what new... a great
0: time it was. I, so much. I hope
1: you enjoyed it too. So you have a new book coming out Very right much. this year. That's right. It comes out in October. October. Yep.
0: Uh, from Shambhala Publications again, and the title is Hidden Zen practices for Sudden realization and embodied awakening, or sudden awakening and embodied realization. Anyway, just look for hidden Zen. Yeah, <laughs> you'll find it. It's not so hidden. It's on the Shambhala site at Amazon already.
1: Excellent. Yeah, and your previous book, Renzai Zen Way. Yeah, yeah, I've got so it. Uh, I've got it on my Goodreads page for any of the listeners that follow me there. I've got that, and then I pre-ordered your new book, so I'm looking forward to reading that. Got to go check out your Etsy store cool. for sure. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And for folks that want to support the monastery you have a patreon page right
0: Mm. yeah we do um if you just search for corinji k-o-r-i-n-j-i uh you can find it on patreon or if you go to the corinji website which is corinji.org there's a button right there
1: okay excellent roshi thank you so much for your time today i really appreciate this i'm more thankful every moment that i found Thanks for listening to my Beacon Series conversation with Midomor Roshi. If you'd like to experience his book, The Rinzai Zen Way, or support the Karenji Monastery, make sure to visit the links in the show notes. If you found something of use in this conversation, consider helping me spread the good news by supporting Find the good News at patreon.com slash findthegoodnews. I thank you for pressing play and for syncing up with this good news signal.